0: A Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing we're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And Cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax, as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On the final episode for the season, Wolf and I have chosen a narrative film each, one from Australia and the other from Europe. Wolf has chosen the 2002 Australian film The Tracker, starring the iconic David Gulpilu, and I have chosen the 2020 Danish film Another Round, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Let's get into it.
1: Tonight tonight we, um, we decided we would finish off this series with a German film, ostensibly a German film that you would suggest and an Australian film that I would suggest. So do you want to kick things off?
0: Exactly. So for the last Wolf Cub Film Club of the season, we've gone for our respective homelands, Australia being my homeland as well, of course. The intention was to pick a German film, and I ended up picking a Danish film. <laughs> well, that's not far from you, is it? Yeah, so Hamburg's obviously the top part of Germany in the north, and we're a couple of hours from Denmark here. But where I actually live, I think around 100 years ago, the border shifted. So where I, where I live in Hamburg was originally Denmark. But... Really, I racked my brain over what German film to pick and there was just nothing that stood out. I had a couple of old classics like Run, Lola, Run.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember Run, Lola, Run.
0: But that really captures kind of Berlin. And then I thought perhaps something more unique to Hamburg. But unfortunately, here in Germany, there's a heck of a lot of crimmies, a lot of murder mysteries and a lot of war films and stuff. So there was just nothing that jumped out. But I'd been wanting to see another round and I I meant to catch it when it was on at the Hamburg Film Festival I actually had tickets to it and I ended up not seeing it so I'd been meaning to to check it out also because Mads Mikkelsen who who stars in it I'm a huge fan of his body of work so that's why I ended up choosing it and the premises of the film Four teachers essentially decide to test the waters by keeping a certain level of alcohol in their system and conduct a kind of experiment around this and see if it helps or hinders them in their lives and as teachers. And it's based on a Danish psychiatrist's suggestion. This is Finn Skaderud, that the human body has an inbuilt alcohol deficiency and actually that needs to be (laughs) balanced out so these four teachers justify their act their actions by doing it as an experiment relative to this theory
1: they are uh kind of all them four male teachers who all teach in the same school and are all kind of going through their midlife crisis of disappointment and Failure of their relationships and their board with their teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Is that
0: right? It's directed by Thomas Winterberg and it's pretty recent, it's 2020. Uh, it's Mads Mikkelsen, he's Danish as well as the director, yeah. So Nicholas Windig-Reffen, who's an awesome Danish director who I'm a big fan of, he's a Danish director who was filtered into the Hollywood mainstream and he did a number of th- these danish action films way back called the pusher films and he had mads Mikkelsen in those so thanks to Wendy greffin Mikkelsen has been also filtered into the the mainstream but he's just done a an amazing body of work he's got a very charismatic unique look which i think connects a little bit to our other film as well in terms of the charisma of David Gopalil.
1: Yeah, he's he's got that kind of handsome villainous, you know, he could be a villain, he could be a hero. He just has to kind of raise an eyebrow and he moves from one to the other. I think it gives you a kind of ambiguity about him as a character, which for me fitted the ambiguity of the film because I, I, I was constantly asking myself where does this film stand in its relationship to alcohol you know is it pro is it anti what is it it seems to be set in the context of youthful binge drinking which seems to be uh, a big thing in Denmark binge drinking uh, amongst amongst the young it's a difficult film to talk about in some ways because it is so hard to kind of figure out what what the fuck it's saying, and which I think is partly due to, um, to Mads Mikkelsen and the, the way he plays the role, and possibly also due to the fact, because I've read a couple of interviews with the director, and apparently the story was based on some conversations he'd had with his daughter about binge drinking and so on. And then she got killed in an accident just as they started filming. And he says that he really he wanted the film to be as much a celebration of her life as anything else. And I think the script possibly shifted in that, in that sense. Is that something that you know anything about?
0: Yeah, I'd heard that that tragedy happened and that they were in a, a dilemma about whether to... To proceed, that must have been horrendously difficult. The timing of all that, yeah, yeah. I, I was just gonna say, I had the same the same questioning all the way through. Is this does this condone alcohol use? as treading a very fine line.
1: You've got your own experiences of a journey with alcohol, and I think that's probably worth touching upon. It's probably worth giving our listener without too many spoilers the clue that uh, at first i mean that the kind of story arc is quite predictable in a way in that when they you know they 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 have little breathalysers each so they can monitor their blood alcohol level and uh, it's it's supposed to be at 0.05, which is interesting because that's, the, I don't know what the limit is in Germany, but the limit here for a breathalyzer test is, point, is, is exactly 0.05. While they keep that level and they have this agreement among themselves that they won't drink after 8 o'clock at night and they won't drink on weekends, they just kind of keep themselves topped up during the day at work, it all seems to go well, they become happier, they become more outgoing, they get on with their students better, Um, particularly Martin Mads Mikkelsen, his character, because he's the main character, looks more at his relationship with his students who've been bored with him teaching history, and he begins to it's a bit like that uh, Robin, what's his name, film about the school teacher, you know, that all the kids love.
0: Robin Williams.
1: Yeah, Robin Williams.
0: Dead Poet Society.
1: Dead Poet Society, yeah, you know, about the teacher who's a role model for his students. So it's all going along hunkily dorily in a way, except that, of course, inevitably they keep or they decide to keep experimenting and up. Up the kind of limit of the blood alcohol, and of course, the drunker they get,
0: it unravels.
1: Yeah, the more of the story unravels, um, quite tragically. In one case, and in Matt's, in Martin's case, while he's kind of tippling along, he gets on better with his wife. But as the alcohol intake goes up, he, he and his wife fall out sort of more or less completely and so that that kind of story arc of of uh, alcohol in moderation which would be i guess that's my position on things like alcohol is all things in moderation it seems to go well but then of course as as they overdo it things begin to fall apart but that's not the end of the film either so it's it's not as simple as as a message of um drink in moderation and you'll you'll get by okay it's more complicated than that it's not
0: yeah what i was touching on before the issues around binge drinking what i've noticed in in europe is that there's much more onus and responsibility given to youths they're treated much more like adults and from what i've seen here in germany in turn there's a respect for that so youths here in germany don't Go, seem to go off the rails speaking generally as much as I've noticed in Britain and Australia. And I've wondered to myself, why is that when the laws are actually quite liberal? So in Germany here, you can drink on the street. Any, a lot of the German folk you speak to, they're like, you know, they, they first dabbled in alcohol at the age of 12. It's consistently pretty, they start pretty young here. And there just seems to be a bit of a healthier relationship with it than I've noticed in in Australia, in Britain. And it's kind of fascinated me in a way. And what what I put that down to is just kids being treated more like adults and given given the right or given the freedom to make their own choices and then in turn respecting that, so not pushing it that that interests me coming from Australia where we predominantly drank to get with one purpose only, which was to get skyrocketed, you know, to get hammered.
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's Danish. It may well be German, but um, I've got a little quote here from one review. I read of another Rand in which, um, The director says he's making a sardonic portrait of a society torn between well-mannered mediocrity and, quote, going completely bonkers. (laughs) (laughs) A tray along with sarcasm that he believes the Danes share with the Brits.
0: Ah, interesting. Yeah. There's a really interesting line from the, the wife where she says, she says it's, um, it's not your drinking that's an issue. She said everyone's drunk in this country. Everyone's bonkers. Everyone's drunk. It's not, I'm not so concerned with the, with the drinking. I'm, I'm concerned with the other issues in our relationship.
1: Well, with the regulation thing, it's interesting what you say because I remember when we visited you being amazed that for what, what seems to be a kind of efficient and well-run country there's such a lack of regulation of people's personal freedoms in Germany, you can go as fast as you want on the Autobahn, you can smoke on the trains. Remember people smoking in front of us at the soccer match, people drinking in the street, drinking on trains, and so on. So I was always quite surprised at that sort of lack of regulation for a country that has a reputation of being so well ordered and but yeah, I think I think Australia and Britain probably, in terms of drinking culture, in, in terms of um, boys behaving badly and binge drinking, are probably more similar uh, to each other. And you've you've kind of experienced both, really. You know, the Brit the living in britain and living in australia and then living in germany how is that tied in with your own journey because you don't drink now do you
0: obviously when i was in britain and i was, was musician and stuff the drinking was heavy but then when i embarked on a different journey when i came to germany which was more about family and fatherhood and and really changing a focus around my well-being i um in line with moving back here was when I started to cut down on alcohol to a point where I gave it up altogether, um, which was four years ago. I think German culture helped me do that because there's very nice, it's not rocket science. There's very nice alcohol-free beer. And uh, I was able to use that as a bit of a social placebo, whatever, you know, that just helped me cut down on these nights that I considered were too too often really, um, as in just having a few too many beers for the sake of it as opposed to like celebrating an event or my journey in Germany has been a bit strange because it has involved going the other way, which has been eliminating it altogether. But I would like to take more of your philosophy, which is moderation with, with everything. That's what I've been continually trying to get back to in my own life is a moderation of things. But I tend to go extreme in that i swing one way or the other so i completely cut something to then try and bring it back to a a middle place the essence of the film to me is there's this fine line between being sober and not sober and it's like when you're playing pool and you've had a couple of beers and you get in this sweet spot you're not drunk so you're missing the missing the ball every time but you're not sober either and you're trying you're in this kind of sweet spot and when when I was doing shows as a drummer I actually used to do that like I wouldn't drink when we had a show but just to take the edge off I'd have one or two beers before we played and I was trying to get to this (laughs) this point it's like what's this level kind of benefits you and doesn't hinder you
1: well, then the question is, why, when they find that level, which they appear to do, early, you know, earlier in the film, why don't they stay there? Why do they have to push the envelope and find out, you know, raise the alcohol content until they're completely inebriated?
0: To test the experiment, they have to go all the way.
1: That seemed, seems to me to be rather predictable. You know, the outcome's rather predictable.
0: Did you enjoy the film, Dad? I don't think you enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, 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 no, I I did enjoy it. I was constantly wondering, is this a comedy or not? (laughs) And I had the suspicion that it was, but I wasn't really laughing. (laughs) Welcome
0: to Europe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And perhaps I wasn't really laughing because it was a bit close to the bone, because (laughs) for me it's not... It's less a film about alcohol and more a film about the disillusionment that sets in in your 40s or your 50s or whatever it is about all the things you thought life would be, which, of course, life isn't. And things haven't lived up to what you hoped for or expected to and relationships become difficult. So, you know, I was, I think... Because it was these four guys who were younger than me, but you know, having their midlife crisis, uh, I was kind of identifying with them, and maybe missed. I mean, it's not exactly slapstick, but there are there is a lot of humour in, in the film and humorous moments. But I kind of I, I wasn't really. Keying into the humor, and I wondered whether you were chuckling when you watched it, or as a younger person, yet to hit your midlife. Crisis. Well, no, no,
0: mine is the. <laughs> or are you hitting? No, well, I've, I've, I don't. I, I didn't realize. I was saying this to a friend the other day. I didn't realize what a kind of marker forty is. Like it really, it's almost like. to I mean, I'm forty two now, but it's almost like at 40 it's like someone gongs the bell in a way that's the way I described it it's sort of I remember your 50th birthday very clearly because we played music and so on but I I sort of gauge your 50th relative to time and that feels like fucking yesterday like seriously yeah I'm very I'm really optimistic and positive about it in this you know the cliche term life begins at 40 I really I think found that on my own journey you know 40 I'm, I'm very I'm a lot clear I'm very clear about stuff now and direction but this grasping and concept of time has become clear as well and you're like holy shit you know your 20s and particularly your 20s you know you sort of cruising along think that they're thinking that there's endless time and And then bang, 40 rolls around. You've got a grasp of how long 10 years and stuff is.
1: Wait till you get to (laughs) moment, mate. (laughs) It's whizzing by at meteoric speed.
0: (laughs) In answer to your question, I...
1: Yeah, come on. Did you think it was a comedy or not?
0: (laughs) Well, it wasn't a laugh out loud side side splitting thing, but I definitely had moments where I chuckled. Yeah, but I, I related to Martin's... He wasn't particularly happy, was he? Was wrestling with himself. This booze thing kind of started to free him up in a way, but then it was like, no, this is headed, this is headed down a shaky road. You need to, you need to free yourself up, whatever that is, um, without the assistance of, of alcohol.
1: I think what is interesting is that, in a way, it adds to the ambiguity of the film. But it's a good thing is that it's non-judgmental. Again, it it meets our criteria that we like films that aren't about villains and heroes they are ordinary guys honestly trying to face up to their issues in a way with a particular sort of approach in the forefront but the the film never um, condemns them for their behavior nor does it kind of applaud them in a way
0: also on a performance level, playing drunk and what level they were at, whether they were very drunk or not drunk, was just was very good because that's a tricky thing to do. I guess we have to say
1: something about the ending of the film. Spoiler, spoiler alert, maybe. One of them um, meets a tragic end and there's a funeral and all the rest of it. But then Martin, I can't quite remember how, but... He gets mixed up in the school, whether I think it's the end of year celebrations and all the kids are out drinking and playing, going by on trucks, playing music. And somehow um, Martin gets kind of sucked into this and he starts to um, to do this amazingly physical dance where he, you know, he's whirling and around amongst the crowds of kids and they're all cheering and all the rest of it. And then he kind of, they're out there by the sea and the last, the frame freezes as he sort of leaps from the pier towards the sea. So there's this, despite, and, and at this point his relationship with his wife has broken down, except I think he gets a text message from her saying she misses him.
0: There's hope for it, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there is there is some hope. And then he does this very celebratory dance thing at the end.
0: He lets go in a way without the alcohol factor.
1: Well, except he's swigging away. <laughs> he's still drunk. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he's drunk. But he's certainly drinking
0: I interpreted it in a more I'm always in a more romantic romanticized thing, which is he fat you know he he's finally free.
1: yeah, well that may be, but he's back in the binge drinking milieu of the young people and there's alcohol splashing all over the place and he's swig- swigging from a bottle and doing this dance so he finds his freedom, but his freedom. His freedom doesn't seem to be a recognition that, uh, that things end badly with alcohol. And, th- and that's where, you know, I, was, I suppose I was waiting for the film to settle on some kind of position about the alcohol and the binge drinking, but it refuses to do so. And so there's this ambiguity in the final scene, which um, is interesting but not, but, but not easily resolved.
0: You know, there's the classic scene which pops up in so many films, so many narrative films, which is where someone discovers there's been an affair and that happens with his wife. Just the way the dialogue and everything in that scene's done, I, I appreciated that scene because he just, you know, there, there's tension and he just says one little thing, you know, have you been elsewhere or i can't remember the dialogue it's not the you know the drama what did you do it's very subtle little things like that were cool
1: my only criticism and and in a way it it's an echo of the other film we're going to discuss is that all well in in um another round there are female characters in the australian film we're going to talk about there are no female characters really although there are um, amongst the Indigenous people, but not main characters. Uh, The main characters are male in Another Round and there's not a lot of room for a kind of female point of view. That that would be, I don't know if that's a criticism, but it's a kind of of buddy film. Yeah, the
0: the Danish wives are all there and you see them and they're all yelling at the husbands
1: but they're not very fleshed out characters. And Martin, as with the main character in the other film we're going to talk about, is quite enigmatic as a figure. Uh, He's not immediately likeable, but you don't dislike him and there are moments where you think he's an idiot and there's other moments where you really admire him. So there is that complexity which which he manages to convey visually through his expressions and, and so on, and, and presumably also the cinematography and the way that it's shot. It, it won, did it win Best Foreign Film?
0: It did at the Oscars, yeah, it did. I don't think anybody was going to walk away from the film and say, well, now I should drink in my job. That's a, a bold thing to address in terms of filmmaking. Like, if you, It's a touchy subject alcoholism
1: most people have some kind of relationship with alcohol and it's something we negotiate through our lives and i remember reading somewhere that you know kids end up drinking probably it's similar amounts to what their parents drink so if your parents are big drinkers then you're liable to to become a big drinker well that's
0: interesting in our case because you've never been a big drinker and i i was quite a big drinker so um
1: yeah but you've come back to finding an accommodation which is much close much closer
0: now that i don't drink it confronts people when i say i don't drink as soon as as soon as someone's like you want to drink and you're like i don't drink there's an elephant in the room and it there doesn't have to be you know and i often get i get the look of is there a problem you know or was there a problem and i I've, I've i'm better at answering it these days i mean it's not necessarily other people's business but um just stopping drinking you know it it helped a lot of things it helped with my focus and my well-being
1: so maybe that that's the message of the film is that yeah you know Alcohol has this lubricant role in society, but it's a bad it's a bad choice if you rely on it because inevitably it'll kind of bite you in the bum. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think we've worked out <laughs> this what would the say. film's say? Finally, after three quarters <laughs> of a
0: of I would say so. Good. Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature.
1: Well, like you, I thought a lot about if I had to choose one Australian film, that felt like a rather large responsibility in terms of choosing. And I thought about some docos and I thought about this film and that film. And I felt that if I was going to, if this was going to be a film representative of Australia, then it ought to include an indigenous aspect to it. And, I began to think about um, Rolf de Heer's films over the years. Rolf de Heer is a Dutch-Australian who's made films for a number of years. Rolf de Heer made a film called The Tracker. He followed it up with two more films, which can be seen as a trilogy. One is called Ten Canoes, which is a traditional Aboriginal story story handed down through generations and told in language. And the third one is Charlie's Country, which is a contemporary Aboriginal story about a guy who's trying to live between two worlds, between a traditional life and the contemporary life. All of them are collaborations with the Aboriginal actor David Goldpillill, who, by sheer unfortunate coincidence, passed away just yesterday and today the newspapers are full of uh, obituaries to david gobble uh, people were standing up in parliament and talking about him i mean he if you picked one uh, leading indigenous actor it would be david gobble who was first plucked from obscurity in, in a little Aboriginal community up in Man and Greta by Nicholas Rogue in 1971 to star in the film Walkabout. So Gold Pillow, since 1971 has had prominent roles. Storm Boy, which you probably remember a well-known kid's film, Rabbit Proof Fence, Phil Noyce's film, which probably a lot of people have heard of. Gold Gopalilla's been in in all of them but he says he has said himself that that the role he thinks he played best was the role he played in The Tracker. The Tracker is 2002 film and it's set somewhere in Australia in 1922 where an aboriginal a tribal aboriginal guy has allegedly murdered a white woman And a posse has been established to track him down in the bush and bring him to justice. And the posse is made up of three uh, white guys, settler colonial white guys, and this Aboriginal tracker who's played by David Goldpillill. And as he leads the posse through the bush on the trail of this, um, the fugitive, Slowly but surely, things unravel for the white guys involved, and there's a denouement at the end
0: of the film. What the heck is a denouement? I've never heard the that. Denouement word. is. Like, <laughs> I've never heard that <laughs> word before.
1: It's the action that resolves the film, right? You know, in the final, in the final act. There are various interesting, uh, and you, you probably spotted some of them, interesting techniques and things that are used in the film. But one of them is is this notion that none of none of these guys, including Gold Pillar, are given names. They're given they're given archetypes. So the guy who's on the run, the Aboriginal guy, is the fugitive. The leader of the posse is the fanatic. They're they're all um, their name. You know their types are spelled out at the beginning of the film. The fanatic leads. There's a, a veteran who's um, kind of older and wiser, but he's he's part of the posse and he. He sort of suffers the fanatic who's in charge but never does anything to challenge him. And then there's a young police guy who's obviously, uh, he's naive, he's he's new, he's young, impressionable, and he's labelled as the follower. And I think the story, although the main character of the film, one might say, is the tracker, Golb The story, I think, is seen through the eyes of the follower Mm. because he's the character that changes during the film and none of the other characters really change. So that's one of the techniques. And what it does is it signals this is not a film simply about an individual story. It's a much wider commentary on settler Aboriginal relationships in Australia overall, and I think that context is important and we can kind of come back to that. But um, what other devices did you spot that were interesting to you?
0: Well, firstly, i just say it's very fitting and very timely that we're able to pay tribute in a way considering the coincidence of us looking at this film with David Goulpalil's death it's an honour to be able to do that at this time, given that. It is. I saw those articles, you know, all the tribute articles, and I read a couple of them just, as you say, and I was like, wow, this is quite timely. But the devices, so uh, obviously the soundtrack by Archie Roach he is a very well-known Aboriginal Australian singer, and he he does this a beautiful soundtrack through the whole thing. And then there's, there's also the use of... Paintings that, that capture part of a scene that we may not actually see. So instead of seeing a certain aspect, we we have a quick glimpse of a painting. Um, and also just the landscape, you know, this meandering. The plot line is actually quite simple, the, the thread. Essentially, they're just meandering through the landscape, trying to to capture this so-called, well, it's said that he's an Aboriginal guy who's murdered a white woman. It was... Awesome for me to watch in a way just to reconnect to the Australian landscape, especially sitting here in the snow. It was just really nice. So the landscape itself was just such a huge feature. Those devices of the paintings, the landscape and the soundtrack.
1: The soundtrack isn't just a soundtrack, is it? It's, the songs are actually part of the action of the film.
0: It's poetic.
1: Earlyish on in the film, there is a massacre when the posse come across an Aboriginal family uh, camping in the bush who are wearing uniforms, police uniforms or aspects of their clothing. And so the fanatic immediately decides that, well, they must be guilty of killing policemen or something if they're wearing these clothes. And so he starts to abuse them, and the young guy who's the follower joins in with the abuse. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that their voices drop and Archie Roach's song comes in over the top, so you can't actually hear the abuse. And this happens a number of times in the film. Um, Often it's just when they're tracking through the bush. But the, the songs, again because they're not specific, um, they flag the notion that this, is, this film has a message which is bigger than, than the film itself, and the lyrics of the songs uh, come through very, very strongly. The paintings, I think, are really interesting because they're used at moments of violence, Um, And this was deliberate. They are used so that the actual violence doesn't have to be acted out on the screen. And I think that's fantastic, A, because it means that the violence isn't sensationalised. You know, the depiction of violence is a very fine line between realism and it being kind of exploitative and vicarious, you know, that we that were entertained by that violence. So I think to find a technique where you hear the gunshots, but the massacre is depicted in a painting rather than on the screen by actors, I think is a very interesting and very ethically conscious way of dealing with it. And apparently these were like, they weren't just Pictures that were drawn by the artist, they are like huge canvases, 14-foot canvases that were painted um, by the artist Peter Code.
0: For the film?
1: Specifically for the film. And those paintings were exhibited separately to the film as well as being seen within the film. So I think the paintings are a really interesting device and the use of the music and the songs are really interesting devices, along with this refusal to give the characters individual names, but just to give them descriptions, such as the fugitive and, and the fanatic.
0: The lyrics have more weight than the dialogue itself between the characters. Um, and as you say, the use of the images, it's a very delicate way of treating the material
1: Yeah, it's a film, it's really a film about guilt and whether, you know, who is guilty and uh, how you ascribe guilt and um, that's where the context of the film I think is important because in 2002 we were in the middle of the so-called history wars when historians were being attacked by popular commentators as Presenting a kind of black armband view of Australian history, overplaying the violence, emphasising dispossession as opposed to the achievements of Australian settlement. And at that very time, John Howard had refused to apologise to the stolen generations who were removed from their families by deliberate government policy. And Howard always maintained that the descendants of people who made those, those policies were in no way guilty in any sense of association with their ancestors. And this film really is a bad guilt, and at the end of the film ascribes guilt to the fanatic who is put on trial by the tracker, asked does he plead guilty or not, a murder and found guilty by the tracker, who then exacts justice in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth fashion. But the interesting thing is the role of the follower in the film, in that early on in the film, he's quite sceptical about the tracker. And in fact, he says, oh, this guy isn't tracking. You know, he's just leading us on a merry dance through the bush and the tracker shows him how he's following signs in the landscape which are not visible to the white guys. And the follower actually apologizes to him. But it's not just about apologizing. From that point on in the film, he's not the follower any longer. In fact, he starts to question the authority of the fanatic. And in the end, It's the follower who disarms the fanatic. You could interpret this film as, you know, the bad white guy gets his comeuppance. The good white guy survives and the Aboriginal guy is sort of triumphant and disappears, you know, into into the bush from whence he came. You could interpret it that way, but I think it's much more complicated than that. And the clue is... In the the song that Archie Roach sings, which says, I will only forgive when there is contrition. What it's saying is being sorry isn't enough. Contrition means I'm sorry and I want to do something about the fact that I'm sorry. And in the film, that's what the follower does.
0: He takes action. Yeah.
1: So, of course, a few years after that, Rudd got into power uh, and when he was prime minister he did apologize to the stolen generations
0: i picked it up that i'm sorry i remembered midnight oil at the 2000 sydney olympics wearing clothes on stage that had i'm sorry written all over the written all over their clothes and it was just yeah there was this huge weight on these words you know just the 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 apology that that nobody in a senior position could seem to bring themselves to just say but you're right about this contrition or what you know the lyrics of well there's the sorry but then is there the action and you're right that that shift in the followers character to then embrace that more than just the words
1: yeah exactly and of course there's there's the overall symbolism of the tracker the Tracker is a figure in a number of uh, quite a, a lot of Australian films. He's a kind of enigmatic Aboriginal person who's in between cultures, as it were, you know, he's serving, he's working for the white posse, but at the same time, he understands this country that, in a way that they don't understand they are strangers to it and they're kind of reliant on him to lead them to find the fugitive and there's this tension all the time because you know that the posse is not just being led by the tracker but it's being watched by unseen eyes they're going through the bush a spear appears from nowhere and hits one of the horses Then another spear comes from nowhere and actually hits the follower and wounds him. And so the party is slowed down by this. So, you know, these spears kind of keep coming from nowhere.
0: It doesn't hit the follower, it hits the veteran who they then have to decide, well, yeah. Hits the veteran and and it's a case of, well, he's going to hold us down so he needs to be cut loose. There's a moral dilemma in that. Yeah,
1: and he is cut loose by the by the fanatic. So the, the, the tracker, and he's just played fabulously by Golpilil, who one moment seems to be on their side and then another moment he clearly isn't. And at the end of the film, it becomes clear that he's been in communication with the tribal people that are in that area all the way along while they've been tracking them. That figure of the tracker is an archetypal
0: figure too who
1: represents the kind of insecurities of white people in the bush.
0: He's the the quintessential middleman. There's just no denying the charisma of David It, It Just everything through his eyes. The camera sees him that's what I read in one of these articles. He's like, I don't need to act. The camera sees me. And he just has this undefinable charismatic presence. You could just watch his face for hours, you know, and he's got this, he's got this playfulness to him as well. his humor to him as well. There's that moment where, uh, where the fanatic is, has met his demise, but he's, disappeared off the he's he's not hanging anymore and the tracker's is like you know he's probably been eaten we we probably you know the tribes have probably eaten him or whatever
1: that's right you know we're all cannibals and the followers
0: completely bemused and then he just and then the tracker breaks out in laughter you know but it's again it's a fine line he's able to find humor in these dark moments
1: and and he confounds one's view of you know, the noble savage or whatever. For example, when when the veteran dies, it's the tracker who closes it closes his eyes and recites the Latin burial rite. I think it's the Catholic one. So here's here's a tribal Aborigine um who can speak, well not speak, but you know, he can talk in Latin and and the follower is completely taken aback by this, gradually comes to see the tracker in, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in, in a much different way. There's an interesting moment at the beginning, I don't know if you spotted it, but at the beginning of the film, the tracker is wearing a police hat, the same as the follower is wearing. Early on in the film, they're walking through the bush and he just takes the hat off and throws it away uh. and after that he doesn't wear a hat and that's a clue early in the film that the tracker isn't just a foil he isn't there just to serve the white man's purpose throwing the hat away is a kind of symbol
0: well it makes you question who where where does his alliance lie but obviously he's juggling this fine line between the you know, between the two. Yeah, because if
1: if he gives himself away, he's a dead man. He's got to genuinely track down the fugitive, which he does in the end. And in fact, in the end, the fugitive is treated to tribal justice. He's speared because that's what Aboriginal justice requires. So, yeah, he's in this position where, he has to do what he's set out to do, but at the same time, he's not on the side of the settler colonials. He's on the Indigenous side and he wreaks justice from, from that perspective.
0: But I, I just love this intuitive sense that the tracker has. He just knows what's going on. That's enough. Um, this, knowing, this knowingness as opposed to all the fiddle-fucking-about that the white folk do.
1: <laughs> there is this sense in the film that the whites are invaders in a country that they don't understand and don't belong to, whereas the tracker
0: belongs
1: in that country. So, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting film
0: again i got a lot of gratitude for well the work that you've done with aboriginal communities particularly on flinders island tasmania and through the and you know the film you did about harold aboriginal opera singer this was just uh, an education into australian native culture through my upbringing that i'm really grateful to to have had through your work and we addressed a lot of stuff at school, Australian history and colonisation and things, but my true education was watching you and your films and also being, you know, taken to Flinders Island and part of those, those experiences.
1: I mean, making those films in my early filmmaking career was an education for me as a newcomer to Australia. It was a way of educating myself about Indigenous culture and meeting Aboriginal people and so on. And, of course, things, things have changed.
0: So in terms of where it's all at at the moment, I've perhaps lost a bit of touch with that, but do you think it's in a positive place in terms of moving forward and how, how do we move forward from where we're at now?
1: I think it's happening and we're ready. And your big sister has just got a job. Uh, With the state with the Europe Justice Commission, which is the Victorian state governments in trip, it's part of their treaty initiative. And is they're holding this truth telling commission, in which Aboriginal Indigenous Australians will be able to come to the Commission and talk about their experiences going right back to colonial amazing yeah it's not happening on a federal level but state governments are beginning to do this and i think people are beginning to take seriously this question of you know are we guilty by association with our ancestors okay we're we're not immediately guilty by association but we have some responsibility for what happened and we have to take some action uh towards reparation and we've got to demonstrate true contrition which isn't just about saying sorry it's about you know taking further action and i think the europe justice commission is an example of that and that's the interesting thing about the tracker is that at the beginning it says somewhere in australia in 1922 we're not talking about 1822 we're talking about not far beyond the living memory of... So all
0: 100 a years.
1: years. Yeah, we're talking 100 years. So our grandparents, for example. And 1922 is exactly the year of the Sturt Creek Massacre in the Northern Territory, uh, where an Aboriginal family of women, children and men were chained up, taken out into the bush, killed and their bodies were burnt. And and that was a retaliatory attack um, because of the alleged, an alleged crime that an Aboriginal person had committed. But, you know, Deheer describes The Tracker as a road movie with no roads, <laughs> but it's described by others as a kind of Australian meat pie Western. And it's described as a Western because the guys are using guns to shoot the natives
0: there's punching in shots where they zoom in closer to at a moment it's got that western western feel to it
1: you've got the horses and the rifles in the holsters and you've got all that paraphernalia of the
0: western but yeah the bigger picture stuff like um you know in terms of atrocities you know being recent in a way there's people that are still alive that are 100 and we're talking 100 years ago it's crazy how recent that is in terms of terms of history and, um, you know, this whole thing we have, you know, I get it a lot here in Europe, oh, you Aussies, you're descendants of convicts, you know, you're descendants of the petty thieves in terms of our colonisation. I heard an interesting saying that part of perhaps Australia's concern is not that we're since white settlement descendants of convicts, that there's also a lot of descendants of police, Um, which I thought was an interesting reframe. I think Clive James or someone said that, you know, there's a lot of policing in our, in our history as well, in our white, since white settlement. I I do think in New Zealand, Maori culture is much more embraced and present in daily life.
1: Well, Maori make up 15%. It's a different percentage. Yeah. In New Zealand, they make up two or 3% of the population here and, um, and many of them still live up north
0: But, look the haka the haka the Maori dance is an awesome thing that you know that even the white guys do in the rugby and and what i would love to see australian culture do is embrace some of that and of course when when adam goods did a tribal dance you know he was ostracized and outcast and attacked for a very long period of time and actually what was the name of the doco there were,
1: there were two docos um, that came out at the same time and I actually thought, I was thinking that I might use one of those as my Australian film.
0: We did watch one of them together when I was home last.
1: That's happening in Rugby League now. Okay. They've developed right. their own version of the haka uh, because there's a lot of Indigenous guys play Rugby League.
0: Ah, uh, Brilliant.
1: And they've started doing that. Uh, before games
0: brilliant which is is i didn't know that that's awesome that's fantastic
1: that's a new quite a new thing there's a doco at the moment about that actually
0: yeah the adam good story made me very angry i got really angry watching that film but it was just amazing when it all got on top of him he he just had to go back out to land and put his feet in the sand you know when you arrive in europe or germany as an aussie you know there's this you get some attention at the party because you can talk about dangerous animals and, and I think Aussies can sort of run away with their egos in Europe thinking that they have some point of difference. But here, here in Germany where people are very conscious of what's going on politically at home, I've had a few incidences particularly early on that just smashed away any sense of false bravado. That's what I call it, false bravado because you're the Aussie you're you know in Europe yeah I realized here pretty quickly that it didn't stack up I had a few people you know just a bar I remember a bar woman just flat out oh good hey you know we're Australians and she's like yeah you don't treat your natives very well do you you know and then the bravado is just like cut down and I think guys kind of struggle with that
1: I think what you said about you know that there's a history of policing I mean I think less Australians are from. Convict backgrounds than they are from um, squatter and and free settler backgrounds, but yeah you're right, there was a lot of policing from the very beginning, and somehow there always has been like we put Aborigines onto reserves and missions uh, we take we've taken children away and put them in orphanages, we lock refugees up in detention camps on islands thousands of miles away there is this kind of um, prison there does seem to be a bit of a prison culture (laughs) so Australian society is quite regulated but there's also this notion of the larrikin
0: the lucky country she'll be right
1: whereas in Germany it's like un. Unregulated, so you don't need to be larrikins and yet there's this kind of um, yeah. reputation of efficiency and economy and everything.
0: But you can go as fast as you fucking want, and you can drink, you have freedom of choice. This, this is yeah. this is you've worded yeah. you've worded it great because this is I, I can never articulate this this to people this contradiction. But of course, here it's also a contradiction in terms of the weather's crap and that impacts your lifestyle so you've got a lot of grumpy grumpiness here because of the hard history and the hard weather in australia you know it's beautiful way of life a lot more friendliness but i consider it far more regulated and so it's this whole it's really pros and cons to to both um it's what's amazing is having access to both these lands but i, I find it fascinating that the the polarities between the two because
1: I think there are some senses in which German society is a kind of, there's a sort of reversal going on. We're regulated, put larrikin underneath. You're kind of larrikin on top. With internal police. <laughs> with internal police. Yeah, yeah, you've got the internal police. The Germans have police. the internal <laughs> police. <laughs> yeah, and we've got the external police. It's classic.
0: Yeah. I'm proud of my Australian heritage. I haven't turned my back on home. I'm very proud of our, my Australian heritage, and I would just love to see us move forward in terms of embracing native culture. And it sounds like, because I've been a bit removed from it, it's awesome to hear from you that you feel that that's moving in the the right direction. So
1: you're gonna you're gonna round off the season with a little speech. That was my speech. I'm proud of <laughs> oh, my, was proud his- of
0: my Aussie heritage. No, but guys, that's brings us to the end of the first season of Wolf Cub film club and we it's been awesome to dive into these films and and um I've learned a lot pop doing this with you learn a lot from the films and and um you know hearing what you have to say and all your insight has been very cool
1: yeah no I think it's been great and um I've learned quite a bit from you too and that your experience is living in Germany and so on. And it's just been, even if we do have only two listeners, and maybe we have a few more than two now, um, it's just been terrific to opportunity to have these chats, which, you know, perhaps are a little bit rambling, but hopefully people will forgive us for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's been an awesome way to connect and stay and stay connected as father and son from opposite sides of the globe and just talk about what we love, which is is film and filmmaking process and share our anecdotes. So we hope you guys have have got stuff out of all of that. But, um, yeah, it's just been a really cool, particularly through this very strange time we're in.
1: Well, when we started these chats, I think uh, the Euro 2020 was just coming to a close wasn't it that's true england didn't it didn't manage to win the final and since then manchester united have gone down the tube and melbourne victory are on the way back up (laughs) (laughs) there's been some progress it's all reflected in football and what happens in in football yeah life imitate does life imitate football or football imitates life
0: football imitating life you know when I think Zidane is a prime example of this. When Zidane retired, you know, he got one of the greatest footballers in history. He headbutted a guy and got a red card, and that was his last hurrah. That was his last dance.
1: Have you seen the
0: film Zidane, <laughs> where he's the on the pitch, where he's playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you feel immersed in the game, and uh, you realise like there's two things I realised from that film. One, one how prominent Beckham was. Beckham's everywhere in that film. Everywhere you look, you see Beckham. Like Beckham's, uh, what do you call it, the amount of mileage that Beckham covered. Um, And also I think for any player, you realise how little time they're on the ball and how sort of um, when they they do get on the ball, how quick it is. It's just like nothing for 10 minutes and then it's like bang, bang, bang.
1: (laughs) It's amazing because... He does bugger all, and then he scores a goal. He scores, and then he gets sent off.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: classic, <laughs> it's classic. That's his. That's his two contributions to the but game. But I just
0: think the way he finished his career was like, like, was almost Shakespearean. Would you call it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You don't expect a guy like that to go out like that, but that's the irony of of life. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah that's no, true all right we're gonna stop recording i'm gonna stop recording.
0: thank you for listening to season one guys and we may see you in the near future
1: you think there'll be a season two
0: wolf and i will put our heads together and take all that we've learned from this season and see how we move forward That concludes the first season of Wolf Cub Film Club. We hope you've enjoyed the episodes and the films as much as we have. You can hit us up on our Instagram at Wolf Cub Film Club or at Lion at gmail.com. Until next time, all the best.